Welcome to the Business of Innovation podcast, featuring in-depth stories from innovators within leading local and global organizations, brought to you by the Pfeiffer Innovation Hub at the Clemson University MBA. I am uh, so pleased to be with you, Rich Morris, today. I think I've asked you for this interview for over a year, so it's been so great that you, um, as one of our MBA graduates, uh, having all the success that you've had in manufacturing and automotive, and now with an aerospace company, uh, that you're willing to come back and talk with us um, in our podcast series called The Business of Innovation. Um, so. I've sort of prepared a few questions to ask you, and I'm sure we'll uh, go off on our tangents, and that'll be great too. But I, no I did want to ask you just to maybe talk about your current role in as much as you can, and maybe kind of how you came to be in, in that position. Yeah, so um, currently I work for, a, let's say, a major aerospace company in, in Southern California. Um, my responsibilities are for the manufacturing of uh, the product that we have here. Mm-hmm. And um, as you know, I can't talk a whole lot about it. Right. But, um, in essence, I'm I'm responsible for the manufacturing of, and um, how it came to be. I just I, I, there's a story. My grandfather actually asked me one time um, to uh, to do him a favor and, and give back to an American company before I retired because I'd been working for for Nissan and for BMW for so long that he thought it would be appropriate for me to work for an American company at some point in time before I retired. And um, so I thought the timing was right. Um, things at my at BMW where I was working before had kind of just gotten to a point where I didn't feel like I was contributing mm-hmm. as much as uh, I'd like to. And I'm somebody that really likes to be in the middle of, the, you know, on, on the field playing part of the process and the opportunity to come here um, came. And it's really been a great experience for me. So um, it's tough at 50 to uh, change careers, to change industries because it's really like starting over again um, so that's been one of the biggest challenges for me is learning the new technology learning the new business but um, it's been a lot of fun for me personally that's so interesting because I remember when we've spoken in the past your grandfather was quite an influence on you I think he uh, he also worked in manufacturing particular in automotive so it sounds like you learned a lot from him growing up yeah, so I always say I'm third generation auto worker from Detroit originally, mm-hmm. and um, so my entire family worked in the auto business, and he started, I think, in like 1939, somewhere in that neighborhood, working for uh, Hudson Motor Corporation in Detroit, and so I grew up listening to a lot of stories from him and from my father and other people about factories and manufacturing, and mm-hmm. you know, when you when you grow up in Detroit, you just assume that's what you're going to be doing is the same thing, building cars, and so. Um, yeah, I did that for over 30 years. Interesting. And then this opportunity presented itself, and you harken back to the time when he challenged you to think about circling back to an American company. Yeah, the idea in my head and the way like I personally interpreted that was you know, to find a company that was really trying to do something good, something different, um, and and use the experience that I have, you know, 30 years of manufacturing automotive to try and help. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really came here thinking to try and help. It's been interesting for me because I left a, um, a pretty nice VP position at BMW <laughs> right. and uh, came to this organization um, in, in a lower capacity, to be quite honest with you. 
but really challenging myself personally as an engineer and as a as a leader on the shop floor. It's been it's really been a humbling experience. I'll tell you that for sure. Um, and and I'd like you to talk more about it being a humbling experience. And also, I'd like to hear more about. I know that you you mentioned. Um, working with uh, a lot of engineers and, and really helping them better understand leadership skills, even using Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Can you talk a little bit about the role that you play in sort of mentoring um, engineers and helping them grow as leaders? Yeah, I can. Um, so one of the things I learned when I came out here talking to, there's a lot of startup companies, obviously out in this area and, and north of here in San Francisco. And talking to a lot of my friends and neighbors and, and some old colleagues from BMW that are also working out here at various startups. Um, one of the things that I realize in talking to people is the there's a, an extremely high talent pool here of engineers that are just super, super smart people in all kinds of companies, whether they're um, like rideshare companies, whether they're electric car companies, whether they're aerospace companies. It's just some of the smartest people in the world um, that I've ever met. I feel stupid when I talk to people here. I really do. Um, and all of them are working for a company or, or, or an organization that has some product, some idea to further the human existence in a sense or to further the human experience, whether it's through um, solar energy, whether it's through an electric car, whether it's through some sort of uh, plan to go you know, to outer space, whatever it is. They all have these sciences and technologies that they're super or hyper focused on and are very smart in those regards. But um, eventually, all of these organizations, um, like any other organization, are an accumulation of people. And most of these folks that are here have never worked in any other businesses than the ones that they're in. And they're all very talented engineers that have never had any exposure to leadership. And um, I found very quickly when I got here at the age of 50, not knowing the industry, not knowing the technology, that um, if I'm going to add value, it's certainly not going to be telling them how to improve the technology. Mm -hmm. um, I have to learn that myself. But the value I could add is to help people understand leadership and how to organize the teams to be able to do more, uh, to be able to accomplish the task faster through um, organizational management, through, through leadership, um, yeah, that basic thing. So one of the things I always start with when I talk to folks is just start off with Maslow's hierarchy. Because if you understand Maslow's hierarchy, then um, you can understand some basics about people. And I always joke with folks here to say that um, they certainly understand the science and technology of what we're doing, the physics behind what we're doing. But they don't always understand the, the science of people or the psychological science of people, which can be sometimes um, an impediment to progress. And so um, anyway, like Maslow's hierarchy, what I found, and it's very disappointing, and I hope at Clemson, um, the engineering groups are listening to this, but <laughs> most of the engineers I'm talking to don't even know what Maslow's hierarchy is. Um, and so I remember learning that when I was an engineer uh, many, many years ago in my undergrad. But I also remember that was one of those classes everybody hated to take. It was some sort of organizational behavior class that was going over those kind of topics. But um, I found it to be one of the, the most critical things to understand as I started off as a leader many years ago supervising at a GM plant. Um, because if you really look at Maslow's hierarchy, uh, the first levels are basic needs, safety and, and the, the physio physiological needs of food and water and so forth. 
And if you're leading a team of employees in a, in a factory, um, obviously their first concerns are going to be, do they make enough money to feed their family? Can they live where they, you know, in a safe area? And is the workplace safe? And if you can make sure that those things are taken care of, you've already fought the first battle or won the first battle. Mm-hmm. You have people that can focus on the job. And then the next level is the, the psychological needs of people. Do they feel like they belong to the team? Do they feel like um, you know, what they're doing is valued in the company? And that's really the job of a supervisor or a leader in the organization is to, um, is to make sure that your team feels recognized, feels valued, feel like they're involved in what's happening because if they are, they're going to do a much better job of what they're doing. And then the final part of that is um, self-fulfillment. And that gets into, is what I'm doing as an individual really meaningful? Does my life have meaning? Mm-hmm. And in a lot of these startups, that's actually the easiest thing because these startups have um, very clear goals and visions that everybody really rallies behind. Uh, and so it's that beginning part of Maslow's hierarchy about creating um, basically making sure that people have the right comp and benefits, mm-hmm. making sure that we have a safe work environment, and making sure that people feel on a daily basis like they're, they're needed, they're wanted, and they're valued in the organization. And uh, if you can win that battle on the shop floor, that's already you're, you know, you're off to a great start. I think it's interesting that you pull in uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and, and, and remarkable as well that you remember it from being a freshman. So. Good for you. That's the one class I didn't sleep in. <laughs> Good on you, as the Europeans say. Um, but do you think, um, would you also agree that when you help people meet those needs and, and kind of come to the pinnacle part, that that's when maybe innovation really can occur because they're, they're most engaged and, and they are able to really begin to think even more creatively about what they're doing? Yeah, a- absolutely. So the one thing that somebody asked me the other day, what's the difference, Rich, between you know, working in, in auto, the automotive industry or working in, uh, in aerospace out here in California. And the one thing I will say for sure is there are some highly talented craftsmen out here working in the aerospace industry. And these are, are welders. These are um, folks that work on the structural part of the airframes. These are folks that um, spin form large domes. These are folks that do all kinds of um, really handcrafts that I just I have never seen in the auto industry highly talented people. And if you can focus that talent and that energy and that experience on innovation, as you just mentioned, they're gonna come up with all kinds of ways of improving not only the the process that we're using to build whatever product we're building, but also to improve the product itself. And um, if they're preoccupied with, you know, not making enough money, if they're preoccupied with um, health insurance, if they're preoccupied with workplace safety or something like that, then um, they're not focused on the task at hand or the mission that the company has or the, you know, the, the, the undertaking has in general. Um, I, think, I think I might already know the answer to this, but can you tell me what you love most about the work you're doing? So, yeah, anybody can link, look at LinkedIn and they're welcome to look at my LinkedIn account and see what I'm doing. And if you're interested, obviously link with me if, um, if you're interested in a career in the aerospace field, mm-hmm. um, but I think for me, it's what I would draw, what drew me to this field and to um, to the business that I'm in is, is the mission itself, mm-hmm. and um, my own curiosity with uh, with space, my own curiosity as, a, as somebody that grew up um, in the '70s and watched Apollo missions on television and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, those are things that 
just really I remember and that really um, fascinate me and to be part of the aerospace industry yeah I mean that's for me just like the icing on the cake personally mm-hmm. um, so I think that's what I really enjoy about the role but what I'm finding more and more um, because my you know you have to know your strengths and your weaknesses mm-hmm. and um, my, my, my weakness is clearly I'm not the most technical person I have an engineering degree but um, no one would accuse me of being a fantastic engineer. Uh, people at BMW who know me will know that um, I was very much more process and people oriented as a as a leader at BMW, and um, that's leveraging that strength and being able to coach the next generation of leaders in this aerospace industry, and um, and to work with them to develop the leadership skills on top of their extremely, uh, you know, great technical skills. I think that's also something that I really enjoy. Um, and I'm finding that, that I personally get a lot of satisfaction out of. I had a feeling that's where you were going to go. You have had an amazing career when you, you know, just looking back at, at the different roles that you've played and, and then now getting to really do this amazing thing that excites you and, and uh, uh, so few people are really involved in. What would you say has kind of been the biggest challenge in coming to this this new company, um, and, and maybe remains the biggest challenge? I think that um, there's an opportunity in in um, in this, whether it's where I'm working or any other kind of startup. You know, there's an opportunity for um, leaders that can be both highly technical, and and then exhibit great leadership and coaching mm-hmm. skills. I think there's a great opportunity out here for people like that, that can find a way to, to meld both of those things together to help, um, yeah, to help accelerate the mission of whatever the, the organization is. And that seems to be uh, a void that for people that are listening, that, um, that definitely could be filled. Um, because all of these companies have great missions, you know, and great ideas. The question mm-hmm. is how to help them further them. And what happens is, as these companies start to scale up their operations, um, it, it becomes not necessarily the um, the technical side that mm-hmm. keeps them from being able to scale. It becomes the ability to organize large teams. Um, they get farther and farther from the, the the nucleus of the of the organization. You follow what I'm saying? Yes. So as a company becomes bigger, you have to start leading differently. You have to start leading organizations differently. You have to start organizing the company differently in order to be able to organize further and further from what was the nucleus of the company. And that's something that a lot of these startups face. And so there's a really great combination of, um, in my opinion, <laughs> of people that have an engineering degree and, mm-hmm. and, for instance, an MBA or an engineering degree and maybe even a psych degree, an engineering degree, mm-hmm. and something else that you're bringing to the table besides just your technical skills. And um, those people are unicorns in, um, <laughs> in organizations like this. And um, I found myself when I got here being that kind of unicorn in a sense that thought differently that I love that you're calling at, I love that you're calling them unicorns and you're you're really talking about right brain left brain I mean we're we talking about more of a holistic yeah 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 really because what I'm trying to teach people also is how does this company make money just like an MBA person would think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, how are we making money what is it that our bit of this organization is doing to contribute to that and how can we improve what we're doing in order to help the company make more money and, and fulfill the mission that it's, that it's um, focused on, right? Mm-hmm. And um, the more people can understand and connect with that, then the better they're going to perform overall for the company's mission. 
But quite often people get so focused on optimizing this small tiny piece of the product that may or may not have the impact that you think it will have on the final outcome of the mission or the business. And um, people that have gone that have a good business background also can connect to the dots to the, the technical things that we're doing with how is that going to impact the business down the road. Mm-hmm. And um, that's the connection that um, as, the, as the company scales, that's the connection that you have to be able to make at multiple levels of the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has to happen very quickly. I don't know, are you familiar with this idea of a VUCA environment, you know VUCA? Yes, I am. So, tell so our, tell our listeners. So volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, right? And um, I believe that started somewhere in the 80s, maybe, or earlier with the military. Military. Get into. And so um, a lot of these startups and, and companies out here are living daily in this kind of VUCA environment mm-hmm. because they're trying to move so fast, because technology is changing, because there's always different threats and, and, uh, and opportunities out there in, in, the, uh, in the market. And so in order to operate quickly and effectively in such an environment, you have to have um, the, the folks out right on the, on the shop floor, in, in this case, have to be able to make the right decision at the right time. And that means that they have to have the right understanding of the business, they have to have the right information, and they have to be empowered to be able to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. And that means that all the leaders, like myself, have to not only understand technically enough about what we're doing, but also have to understand enough about leadership to be able to make sure everybody is focused on the right, in the right mindset in the right direction. And so that, that's kind of what I'm saying, is um, I learned about VUCA environment in my last job, but when I came here to, uh, to Southern California and started working um, here and, and talking to other people in different startups, what I realized is this is really where that, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And understanding that and leading in that way um, is really an advantage for companies uh, if they can, can bring that, uh, those techniques to, to their organizations. I'm glad you brought that up. We talk a lot about VUCA environment uh, in the in the MBA program because many businesses experience some level of that. Um, maybe not to the degree as a startup uh, such as you're involved with, but uh, we definitely uh, share that that term because that uh, having a mindset to to address that or to be thinking of that makes a lot of sense. Um, I do want to ask you, Rich, uh, I, I want to make sure that I get this question in, and that is when you look back at your career and you think about where you started and your inspiration, your grandfather, what do you feel most, um, what are you most proud of in terms of a, an accomplishment? And it might be a particular thing or it might just be general, but what are you most proud of in your career? That's, it's, no, that's a good question. So in, in my career, obviously, um, I have to say my wife and children, obviously, are my you know, that's what I'm most proud of is my family, obviously. Mm-hmm. But um, mm. in regards to my career, um, when I look back at my career, I, what, what really I think about quite often is um, what we did in Spartanburg and, and more in Greer with BMW, mm-hmm. starting with, with a peach orchard and um, ending yeah. up with the largest BMW factory in the world. Um, and being part of that, to me, um, yeah, it's something that I'm very proud of. Um, because I think not only did we build a factory there, but we also were able to build a community. We were able to change people's lives, you know, absolutely. That. And I really would like to think that um, we had a positive impact on, on that community. That's where I call home still, you know. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's one thing that I, I would say I'm very proud of. Um, on the same token, um, 
this role and, and this challenge, I'll, I'll be honest with you, as I said, it's very humbling, this job. When I first came after a few weeks, I thought, what have I done? Um, <laughs> you know, I am not smart enough to deal and be able to ha hang with these people. These people are so smart. I feel so stupid every day when I'm here. But um, I really was questioning my sanity as to being 50 years old and throwing myself into this situation. Was it a smart thing or not? Um, but I also just one of these people that just won't give up, you know. Um, I'm never going to surrender and um, just kind of said, okay, I'm going to fight through this. I'm going to use what I know are my strengths in regards to um, coaching and leading and building teams. And I'm going to work on what I know are my weaknesses, which are the technical side mm -hmm. of um, and learning the product. And I still have a lot to learn, believe me. But I know that that's very important as well to be able to technically understand what we're doing in order to lead better. You have to have the combination of both in these environments. And um, so over the last year, I look back and um, I kind of personally proud of myself for being able to hang in there and, and keep up with, with things here. Good for um, you. But it, like I said, it's, it's hard for an old dog to learn new tricks, you know. <laughs> that's not true. From the neuroscience, yeah. we now know that is not true. Oh, good. So there's some science behind this. Yeah, there's some science behind better. it. The neuroplasticity lets you, as long as you're wanting to learn, you can continue doing it. We used to think it was a fixed mindset, but it's really a growth mindset. So um, I easily can, I can see you. I can see you doing it and pushing through the difficulty of it and, you know, your curiosity and all the things that you said drive you. You know, you push through it and you made it work, you know, on your terms, you know, acknowledging what you're good at and maybe what you feel like is, is not your strength in that setting. But um, it, it sounds like it's it's really working for you. Um, so uh, it, it's good to hear you state that and, and talk through that. And um, I, I do have to say, uh, Rich, that um, your your involvement in BMW and starting here in Spartanburg, were you were you there at the beginning as they were building or you came on board just after the plant opened? How did that happen? No, I started, um, I was clock number 102. Okay. Um, and the, the story behind that is I would have been under 100, but um, I actually was working at Nissan at the time. Mm -hmm. And I had asked, um, it, the I won't mention her name, but the lady that recruited me, she's still there. Um, but I asked uh, that I could start later in the year because I had a project at Nissan that I was um, wrapping mm -hmm. up. And uh, I really didn't want to disappoint my, my colleagues at Nissan. Mm -hmm. And um, so I wanted to wrap that project up and I asked, is it okay if I start later in the year? And they allowed me to do that. And so when I started uh, at BMW, it was December of 1993, and we were still um, in, the, uh, in a small building on Tungsten, not on Tungsten Road, but on what is now Brockman McClimmon. Sure. The exit there on, on 385. Mm -hmm. um, There's a small building there, and that's where we worked. And um, I, I was hired in as a quality manager for uh, the new Z3 project. But very quickly, they realized that I was a, a production supervisor from other jobs, and I ended up in the in the production management side. Mm -hmm. And just that's where, where my career kind of went from BMW from that point on. Um, it's fantastic. I, I have only great memories from, from working at BMW. I wanted to mention to you, I don't know if you've read it or not, but there's a Harvard paper written by Rosabeth Moss Cantor on uh, that whole Greenville-Spartanburg area. Uh, she wrote it in 2003, and she talks about BMW coming in, and she talks about this foreign concentration of supplier companies and how, <laughs> and just the, have you read this paper? 
I've not. Uh, it's phenomenal. And so she talks about how as these companies came in, and she writes about, she writes, she's writing about five cities, Boston, Seattle, others, that took a global mindset uh, to kind of grow locally. And, but her whole paper becomes focused on Greenville Spartanburg, and she talks about how our whole culture in the upstate changed. Our food, our schools, everything changed because of this amazing, um, uh, you know, the, the, the culture and, and what began to happen there. And, and uh, it's just an amazing paper. We used it this summer with our Oxford uh, students who went to study abroad just to, to remind them of the global leadership that had already occurred in our, you know, the foundation uh, aspect yeah. of that and what it's done, you know, to the Greenville Spartanburg area. And of course, the paper was is dated. It's 2003, so you know how much more has happened since then. But uh, Rosabeth Moss Cantor was already fascinated with the global leadership and the things that were happening in 2003 because of our leaders. So I'll send you that paper. That'd be great. Yeah. I, um, like I said, that's that's something that I, I I still am personally proud of. Oh um, yes. And I remember um, also listening to Mayor Wise and Knox White, listening to him yeah. speak about the planning that they did that kind of brought uh, Michelin and BMW and other companies into the upstate, uh, to Greenville area. I know. And um, that they, I think Max Keller as well was the previous mayor. And um, they just had an outstanding vision for, for Greenville and, um, and they did it. And it, it really is, it's a fantastic city. Mm -hmm. uh, Spartanburg as well, I live in Spartanburg. Yes. But um, but in essence, the Greenville Spartanburg area is, is fantastic. Well, it's interesting because this paper really focuses a lot on uh, Roger Milliken and moving from New York down and then having a lot of European connections. And then Tukey, yeah. I guess, who was with the Spartanburg Chamber, you know, their their innovative thinking and what they did and their vision. Um, it's just phenomenal. It's still it still excited me so much to read the paper. And a lot of the students in the classroom just really had no idea that had occurred. So you'll really enjoy that. Um, Good. The other thing I wanted to ask you too is um, kind of failures challenge the frustrations that you have faced and overcome. And you, you touched on that a little bit with your current role, but just in general in your career, is there anything you would want to share? Yeah, one um, story I always tell people, when I was, was younger, I, I had um, like two big fears. One, like anybody else, is public speaking. And the other one was I was always scared to death of, of horses. And um, don't ask me why. <laughs> and so I remember when I was in high school, my dad had a farm, and he um, he told me he bought two horses, and, um, and my stomach just dropped. I'm thinking, oh my god, um, for some reason horses just scared the crud out of me. Mm -hmm. And so um, anyway, since he had these, uh, I just started thinking, okay, I have to like just address this, right? I have to. I don't give up. I'm gonna go and just deal with this. And so now we have a couple of horses on this farm and I would go every weekend and, um, and just interface with them. I would take them out, I'd put saddle on them, I'd ride them um, until eventually my dad had like 18 horses on the farm. Wow. And um, eventually I learned basically to overcome that fear. Mm -hmm. And I learned not only that, but um, I went to college while I was in college still, I went to a small community college and got my horseshoeing certificate and learned <laughs> to shoe horses. Um, which is even scarier. It is but scary. I did it. And um, so I do actually still have a horseshoeing license. And um, this was in Michigan when I was was in Michigan. And so um, after that, what, what it really taught me, to be honest with you, is when you're working with a horse here, you're never like making it do anything. Um, 
you're, you're only compromising with it. It's a big animal, right? So mm -hmm. you have to find a way to compromise with it. You have to find a way to get it to do what you want to do. And um, strangely enough, that really helped me understand leadership as well. And so um, I was always fascinated after that by watching how horses interact, by, by working with horses mm -hmm. and learning more and more about how to lead and, um, and to compromise with them. And there's one thing about a horse that no matter how drunk you get, you're never going to crash it. You know, you can ride one and uh, not like a car. This will not let you crash. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, you just cannot force it to do something it doesn't want to do. You can train it. You can get it to compromise. And that's something as you're dealing with large groups of people. And I'm not saying people are horses and people are animals or whatever. But just as you're dealing with large groups of people, a lot of those um, those lessons that I learned also applied. And um the other one was public speaking. Deathly afraid to get in front of class when I was a kid. Um, I wasn't, you know, super smart kid. I always struggled in, in class. Um, nowadays, I, I'm quite sure they would have diagnosed me with like ADD or some sort of attention deficit, you know. But back then, I was just slow and slow to learn. I had to take a lot of notes to remember things. I had to do different things. Mm -hmm. And public speaking always scared me. But when I was in Germany um, for one of the first times, um, I remember this, Al Kinzer was at the time president of BMW. And um, he threw me the, a pen and he said to get up and start taking notes. And so I ended up in front of the whole meeting at the time, very nervous, you know. Um, and I started being the one writing the notes down on this big pad. And ever since that moment, I was always the one that was in front of the group. I was always the one addressing the team. And um, after a while, I started realizing, okay, I can do this. I can. I can speak in mm -hmm. public. I can be the one on stage. And um, as you know, after a while, I started speaking publicly for BMW at large conventions at, um, at many different places. I still get nervous before I go out. Mm -hmm. But after I start, I, you know, I kind of calm down. And um, I realized that I could do it. And Germans stereotypically think that Americans are, you know, we learn from kindergarten how to show and tell and how to present and how to talk, you know. And so... Um, Actually, I'm either not a stereotypical American or, or just normal, but um, that was another thing that, that really took me a long time to, to face. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that's one of the things as you get older, you realize, you know, where your weaknesses are and, um, and you want to try and tackle all those. And um, those are two that I remember distinctly having to really overcome, um, but in the end, learning a lot from those things. Absolutely. Um... And, and we're delighted, by the way, that you're going to be our December graduation speaker, to your point. <laughs> so yeah. we're looking forward to that. Um, Me too. On a scale of 1 to 10, I'm curious to know, I'm just going to shift for a moment. I want to talk a little bit more about being creative. And I remember that you actually walked uh, our associate dean, Greg Pickett, and I through BMW. And we were so surprised and pleased to see how in, how much innovation there was going on. It wasn't just an assembly line. There were all different ways to change things and do things and approach things. And um, and, and you were the person who shared that with us. So um, it, how, how creative do you consider yourself to be? That, that's it's funny because I don't consider myself creative at all. <laughs> um, I, I, I kind of consider that as one of my, my weaknesses in a sense um, because and, and maybe, yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's right or right. I just, I've always not considered myself creative. Um, my strength has been getting the right people together mm -hmm. in order to find the solutions to problems. And um, 
And I, I believe if you get the right people and sit down and you pose the right question and talk through the, the solution, you're going to come up with the right answers or innovations mm -hmm. or solutions. You, you follow what I'm saying? Yes, I do. And, um, and, and that's kind of been how, how I've <clears throat> approached that. Um, seldom do I ever come up with the, the great idea. I mean, maybe there's one or two. But um, normally it's the trick of getting the right people, understanding people, um, and finding out uh, and, and digging out the right idea and then teasing it to a solution. And that's what we did at BMW. That's the same thing that I, that I do here is um, somewhere out there on the shop floor, there's a technician or an engineer that has a great idea. And my job is to go find it. Yeah. Um, and I, I do that by, by being visible on the shop floor, by talking to people, by networking, by introducing people, uh, by selecting the right projects for, for certain people that I think this is really going to be something that they're going to enjoy and it's going to challenge them. Mm -hmm. And then um, working with them to find, you know, that very innovative solution. And, and I think, go ahead. And would you say sometimes coaching them? I mean, kind of sort of facilitating sure. that insight, yeah. use it in that way? Certainly. And, um, and that's where having to continually, continually improve my technical knowledge of what we're doing is important as well, mm -hmm. to really understand who are the right people for, mm -hmm. for that problem, or to really understand, you know, what would a, a, an innovative solution look like, you know. Um, but, I, but what I'm finding is that really an automotive versus this environment, there's like two different kinds of of innovations in automotive quite often it's like the incremental improvement of an existing process you know mm -hmm. it's considered innovation but um in 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 these kind of startup companies the innovations are just off the wall you know never thought of before ideas mm -hmm. and um as an example like you know your phone is a good example right right now the phone is not just no one ever uses the phone to talk on uh if the phone is is more of a a way to deal with the internet and uh, to get information and so forth, to take pictures or, or whatever. Yeah. But how many people really just talk on the phone anymore? And um, somebody somewhere had the idea to transform the phone from just being a phone into something different. Mm -hmm. um, and, and those are the kind of like breakthroughs or, or, or uh, innovations that, that I mean when I'm talking about off the wall things. Um, and typically what happens in, in automotive is you have these um, incremental improvements to an existing thing and so i think innovations come in two ways the incremental improvements of an existing process or product and then just the off the wall um, idea that all of a sudden becomes the norm i don't know if you remember this phone call or not but when we started our mbae program at clemson and it's been i don't know eight ten years ago now so it's an mba for entrepreneurship and innovation so for entrepreneurs and also for entrepreneurs, uh, we polled different companies uh, in this region to ask them what they thought about the idea of their employees perhaps coming in and learning to be more innovative. And I spoke with you as well as a number of other people, and you were very positive about it. Um, I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you if you remember that, but it definitely, there, there, there was only one company that kind of pushed back and said, no, we, we're, we're really careful about innovation, but, but every other company, including you, said, yes, you know, we always mm -hmm. want our employees to be thinking about new and better ways to do things, uh, even new markets and so forth. Um, so uh, here's what I, would, I wanted to say to you, especially where you are now, do you consider yourself to be a disruptor? Now, that's why I was saying um, I, 
I honestly, when it, especially being here in, in California with mm-hmm. people that really are disrupting markets, that really are um, disrupting the norm, yeah, I'm not, for sure not. I mean, I, I'm, I'm pulling out Maslow's hierarchy and talking about it. So <laughs> I'm basically taking something, you know, super old. And I think in some ways I feel that is a little bit innovative is to go back in the past and pull out things that work and not reinvent the wheel where we don't have to, yes. you know, in, yes. order, in order to, in order to accelerate uh, progress, because quite often here, you know, we're reinventing the wheel mm-hmm. when something's already been done. And um, in that sense, maybe it's a little disruptive to the norm here, but um, in essence, yeah, living here and seeing what uh, people are doing, whether they're neighbors that are working for other companies or colleagues from, from BMW that are here working at different companies, yeah, you really see the ideas and, and the ideas to disrupt a certain mm-hmm. industry. And it's, that's not what I, I'll, I'll never claim to be that. But um, that's where I said you, know, you have to kind of know your strengths and weaknesses. And um, my strength is definitely not. I'm not, I'm not the, the very sharp-witted in the sense. If I sit in meetings quite often, people are, are like very quick and, and to learn and very quick to have ideas. And I'm one of these people that has to step back and, and think about things and come back the next day and say, okay, and now I have thought about it. I have an idea. Yeah. Where a lot of folks here are super quick-witted and they can just come up with great ideas very fast. Mm-hmm. This is not my strength, and I know that about myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have to think things over, I have to reason things, I have to walk through, the, feel the technology and look at it and go, okay, now I understand it. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, I don't think I'm quick-witted enough to be a, a super disruptor like folks here, but mm-hmm. I also feel like um, I can help them achieve the goal, and um, I can use the things that I'm good at to, um, you know, to help speed up the process. Do you um, have any advice for people who want to become um, more creative or want to innovate at work? I mean, based on everything you've seen, everything that you've learned, uh, the people that you've been around, because you've definitely been, you've definitely been in those circles, even though you're kind of pushing back on saying you're one of those, but <laughs> clearly you've positioned yourself and you've been in those circles. So what, what advice would you have? I would say, um, and this is, this is where I said, I think a super strong combination are, are people with both the technical knowledge of, of whatever the sciences mm-hmm. you're working on and then the, the, the science of people, the people knowledge um, and, and business knowledge. You know, So this engineer MBA combination for me is in this environment I think is super helpful. Um, I would say understanding first where the need is mm-hmm. and then creating an innovation for that. So quite often people come up with an innovation, but there's no need for it, right? Yes, yes. And, um, and, and sometimes you come up with an innovation where the, the innovation itself is just, is great, but it's before anyone realizes that there's a need for it. Mm-hmm. So timing is really important, you know, to, and I think that's what, what people have to consider. Um, even even me in, in, the invol- in the environment I'm in where I, I want to, you know, talk about certain aspects of organization, certain aspects of leadership, certain things that we should do. Um, I, I understand that from a leadership standpoint, I'm thinking a few miles ahead of the rest of the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have to wait for the organization to be ready for what I want to now implement or what I would like to do. And if I try and bring it too early, um, I, I've, I've lapped them, you know, on the racetrack of life. I'm, I've got them, I'm lapping them in a sense, 
to the point where they think I'm behind them. Yeah. Can you imagine that in your head? And so quite Mm -hmm. often people who have innovation are thinking so far ahead of the rest of us that we think they're silly and they're behind us. And so one of the key things is making sure that your timing is right when you bring something out. Mm -hmm. Um, Or people will disregard it and then several years later somebody will reinvent what you've already come up with and you'll go, hey, that was my idea originally. Mm -hmm. But but people just weren't ready for it. I think that's the other thing. So make sure that what you're doing there's a need for and um, that what you're doing fits into the business that you're you know that's going to help that company achieve its mission or that there's a market need for it you know I think that's the the advice that I would give Um, I want to ask you kind of a personal question as you think about yourself as a leader um, because of course it is to know important to know these things and you've made reference to that several times something you like about yourself and something you don't that's a hard question. Um, yeah, I, I can tell you more what I don't like about myself, I suppose. Um, it's easier for me. I mean, as I mentioned before, I, I get really frustrated with myself because I'm not as quick-witted. Um, I'll sit in a meeting and, you know, I just don't follow what's happening. Um, the only time that was ever beneficial for me was when I was in Munich the first time, didn't understand the German language. And so I, um, I'm very used to having to wait till after a meeting and then asking people to clarify things and so forth. Mm-hmm. So in Germany, that was helpful when I was learning German. But other than that, it's, it's a frustrating aspect of myself that I just have to, um, I've learned to compensate for it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that's one thing that that frustrates myself is I, I want to be faster at what I'm doing and, and, and just mentally it, it's it's just me it's you know um, I would say that that I'm not somebody that really thinks about that um, and and what I like about myself yeah I haven't that's a hard one to answer as you can tell because I'm stumbling through that I just just that's something I've never thought about um, I think more honestly about um, when I when I about other people and, and how how do I mm-hmm. how do I help that other person achieve what it is they want to achieve mm-hmm. and um, that's kind of how I look at, at life and at things and what do I have to offer them and um, I've always was taught when you're building a network or, or you, and you give more to your network than you ever take mm-hmm. and um, I always kind of follow that rule. And um, when I first came to this organization, the first thing I did is I just looked at what my task was. I looked at um, in the organization chart here, who's doing what, Mm -hmm. and I circled people that I thought I needed to know. And then I just started having coffees with people every morning and and introducing myself Mm. and offering my support and helping people out until I built a pretty good and strong network in the organization. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, then I was able to really start helping people immediately with problems that they might be having. Wow. And um, that was really beneficial. And I'm not saying that's something I like about myself, but um, what I'm saying is I've never thought about it. I've always thought about how do I help somebody else yeah. and, and help them. And with the idea that if I can do that, mm-hmm. then I'm adding value to the organization. And then eventually, um, if I needed something, that those people would be willing to help me as well. Um, there's there's a humility that keeps bubbling up in this conversation. Do you think that's something you learned from your grandfather? 
I would imagine, and, and my mom, and um, I mean, I, I don't know if you even know this about me. My, my mom is um, is Mexican, so she's from L.A., and uh, her parents immigrated to the U.S. Um, probably back in the 30s sometime. And so um, super hardworking people mm-hmm. um, as well. And, and uh, so I think that that culture as well is has a, a lot of humility and, and mm-hmm. Uh, also, I would say my grandfather is the same. Uh, my dad is the same. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the fact is that I grew up learning that um, if you want something, you have to work hard for it, mm-hmm. and 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 you're not entitled to anything. You know, um, my mom was a single mother, and she raised us, and um, and did an awesome job. And the the thing that you learn in that sense is you don't give up. You just keep fighting for what you need, and 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 the same for um, my dad. My dad uh, retired as the CEO of a, um, a, a really huge non-destructive testing company, um, but he never went to college. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just started as a maintenance tech and a, a radi- uh, radiographer and just worked his way all the way up to be CEO of the company. And um, But he never looked at, you know, I'll never make it because I don't have a degree. I'll, you know, There was never any sense of what was me. It was all, and, and, and or entitlement. It was, I'm going to work as hard as I can and get to where I want to be. And so those were my role models, along with my grandfather. And even my grandmother, who passed away before I was born, she also worked in the car industry back in the war, you know, where wow. a lot of ladies were. Mm-hmm. She's like a riveter, you know. So um, she mm-hmm. also did the same thing. So it was just a matter of if you work hard and you focus and you help people um, along the way, then, um, you know, that's, that's how you're going to gain and, and do good things. And so, um, yeah, I think that's kind of where, where my inspiration comes from all over the place. I'm hearing, um, I'm hearing that. I appreciate you sharing that about, about your family. That's, that's an, an incredibly strong foundation. You know, all those things combined, the humility, the strong work ethic, um, the determination, uh, definitely foundational. I can see that throughout your career. Um, and how it has supported you. Yeah, and that's the one thing I would say for, for and with my kids as well, you know, mm-hmm. that are going to Clemson, um, mm-hmm. is that um, hopefully that they and, and their friends learn the same thing, that yeah. um, there's nothing guaranteed in life. It's basically what you create and what you make. And yeah. um, along the way, you know, helping others. Um, that's why I said one of the things that I'm most proud of is uh, creating mm-hmm. uh Plant Spartanburg, and um, mm-hmm. and hopefully the good that it did for a community. Those are the kind of things that I think we're put on the earth to do. You know? And um, yeah, you um, uh, you may already know this, but I'll I'll share this just in that same spirit. We have a, an amazing president now, and um, anytime he speaks, he if, if asked uh, about his background, he will usually say, you know, he's a he's from a family of coal miners in West Virginia, and uh, he uh, he gets up every morning and says, "Who can I serve today?" You know, exactly. Very humble, but very similar. And I think that that spirit um, I see a lot of that spirit on our campus at Clemson, and I'm very proud of that. I think that's uh, very uh, very important in this day and time uh, to keep that kind of spirit. So um, uh, I, I hope your children have a great experience at Clemson, and I, I really they imagine love it. I really imagine that they will. Um, I did want to ask you, um, in terms of what you want to um, accomplish going forward, um, I'd like to maybe have a sense of that and then maybe the best advice you ever received. 
So um, what I want to accomplish going forward, it's a hard one. Um, I think, obviously, uh, at my current job here, personally, um, yeah, I want to help this company uh, achieve the mission that it set out to achieve. Um, so that's certainly one of my, my goals um, and be part of be part of history in a sense, not just for the sake of being part of history, but because I think it's important what, what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from a personal standpoint, I think that's the goal. Um, but on, on top of that, I think my, my real goal at this point in time at the age of 52 is looking forward to um, it, a retirement, spending time with my wife and, and, and kids and traveling and doing all the things that, um, you know, that I'd like to do, but finding something in retirement where I can continue to contribute and, um, and, and, you know, help others. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I'm not ready to retire yet. Obviously I got a lot of time ahead of me, but, um, but I think that's kind of looking at now, like I'm in what I call career 2.0. Um, <laughs> and the question is what's beyond that. And, um, just trying to define, define that. I don't ever want to stop working and I don't ever want to stop contributing because I think um, that's just part of who we are. You know, we, we want to keep working, mm-hmm. but I want to find the things that now, um, you know, that that are more um, like, uh, I don't know, that mean more to me that are more personal. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense to you? Sure. Um, what was your other question? Best advice you've ever received? Oh, uh, the one that sticks out for me the most is something that, I can't remember whether it was my, my dad or my grandfather that told me. Um, but one day I was talking about um, something that we were doing at work and how uh, I, I was so impressed. And one of them said um, basically that if a, if any man can do whatever that was, then son, you can do it too. Um, you know, you're no better or worse than any other person. Mm-hmm. And um, that's kind of the attitude that, that they both had is that um, if there was something broken, if there was... Uh, something to, to learn and to understand they could do it just as well as any other person could do it and um, don't ever sell yourself short basically mm-hmm. um, it may mean that you have to work a little harder than that person it may mean that you have to um, just like myself getting learning how to shoe a horse um, in the beginning I thought there's no way I'll be able to do this but um, same advice that my grandfather my father one of the two said is son if somebody else can do it you certainly can learn to do yeah. it and um, it's about overcoming your your fears, your doubts, and um, and whatever your mentally is holding you back, and then learning to do it. And um, I think that's what people have to understand. There's nothing that you cannot do. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of putting your mind towards it, and um, and overcoming the doubts that you have internally um, in order to get it done. Yes. What question should I have asked you, Rich? But I didn't. I don't know. Um, that's another hard one. Uh, I have no idea. Um, I, yeah, you've asked. All, I'm trying to think of any other advice or anything that I would say. Um, I think the one thing that 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 I would reiterate to folks, especially engineers that are they're going through um, school, is make sure you you when you leave the university or you go to your new job that um, you focus as much on, on whatever the technology of that business is as well as understand how the business makes money and how to how to lead people mm-hmm. and you'll be you know very successful 
And for those that are MBAs and, and business folks, um, the same thing, not only understand how the business is run, but try and understand um, the technology or, or the, the details behind what the business is. You know, be involved, understand, mm-hmm. learn how you can contribute. Um, those are things that I would, would advise and one of the things that I also would say to um, a lot of the graduates that are going to be going and interviewing for jobs, don't just show up at, at the interview uh, and expect everyone's going to realize you're, you're a genius and, um, you know, you're so nice. Do your homework on whatever firm you're interviewing with. Mm-hmm. Um, show them that you took the time to, um, to study the company, to learn about the company, to understand mm-hmm. the business and the market and, and how you and your skills can contribute to that. So often people just show up for an interview and smile and say, I'm here. Um, and um, understanding that there's a lot of competition out there and you've got to set yourself apart from the competition uh, interviewing for these jobs and show that you've took the time to understand the needs of the, of the industry or the business and how you can help. And um, those are the kind of people that um, companies are looking for and those are the mm-hmm. kind of things that anybody can do to prepare for an interview and that'll set you apart and um i think that's important coaching for for folks that are whether they're interviewing right out of college or whether they're interviewing you know like i was after 50 uh, or 30 years of working in an industry um it, i think those are those are the things that are also important for folks to know um in this environment so rich morris is there any chance we're ever going to get you back in south carolina to live I'm, I'm sure. I still have a house in, in Duncan. Um, there you so, go. Yeah, that's still home. I told you I'm driving home tomorrow, and um, home is still is still South Carolina. Um, well, yeah. I wish you safe travels, and I look forward to our next conversation, and we'll let you know more details about this podcast. But thank you. Thank you so very much. No problem. I appreciate it. Take care. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. This episode was produced by 9-8 Central and the Clemson University MBA program sponsored by the Pfeiffer Innovation Hub. Thanks for listening to the Business of Innovation. Hear more stories at www.clemson.edu slash MBA slash podcast.